Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let us bow our heads as we seek the Lord in prayer. Father, again, uh, we are thankful for you always being available, that you indeed are what our hearts uh, hunger for. And Lord, we are seeking you now through your word, and we pray that you will, uh, through your spirit, give us the understanding that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take out your study guides inside your bulletins. As you can see, we are, we are going to talk about our third and final session of the, the series of uh, the Adventism or the Trinity and Adventism. The Trinity and Adventism, we've been talking about this, um, very relevant. I hope that you have found uh, the first two sessions very uh, informative and relevant because the fact is, and uh, this is something that I have been sharing, unfortunately there is a growing number of anti-Trinitarians within Adventism today. It's happening. It, it, it may be that even in this congregation, there are people who are struggling with this. This is something that's growing by leaps and bounds. It's in our conference. It's around the country and, and many parts of the world. So, so what we, 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 we've been studying is how do we, how, how do we see the Bible uh, defining and explaining the Trinity? Is the Trinity biblical? And I, I think we have been tackling this the, the first two times um, and so we will continue today. The, su the subtitle would be today, uh, God is Love, the Implication, or the Implication that God is Love. And so as you look at your study guide, as usual, the uh, words that go into, uh, in your blanks will be underlined on the screen. Uh, there's a story of a young boy who was traveling uh, by airplane to visit his grandparents and uh, he happened to sit next to a man who happened to be a seminary professor. And the little boy was studying his uh, Sunday school lesson. And, you know, the, the man next to him saw it. And, and, and being a seminary professor, he thought, well, let me have a little fun with him. And so he asked the child, son, if you can tell me uh, something God can do, I will give you a shiny apple. And the little boy thought about it for a moment, and then he responded, Sir, if you can tell me something God cannot do, I will give you a whole barrel of apples. I wonder if you ever thought about that. Have you ever thought about, is there anything God cannot do? Is there anything God cannot do? And you go, probably you, won't, you, you say, well, no, no, I mean, God can do all things, right? God can do all things. We know in Matthew chapter uh, 19, verse 26, the Bible says Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, with God what? All things are possible. God can do anything. Aren't you glad that God can do anything? There's nothing that God cannot do. And that encourages us. God can do anything, but, but, that does not logically follow that with God all non-things are possible. God can do anything except what lies beyond the realm of possibility. For example, God cannot create two mountains adjacent to one another without a valley in between them. It's just beyond the realm of possibility. 
or creating existing things that don't exist, or causing love to exist in the heart of someone who chooses not to love. God cannot make love appear when there's nobody else to share that love with. Now, we've been talking about, last time we were together, the character of God. The character of God, how John defines who God is. And what does it say? He, this is our scripture reading, he who does not love God, uh, does, not love, does not know God. Why? Because God is love. It's not merely that God is loving, although God is loving. God loves you, but John says he defines who he, who he is, what God is. God is love. And so everything that God does is based on the premise that he is love. And anything that we believe should be based on that premise that God is love. Any doctrine that you hold dear to, you must be able to justify it with the God of love. If you believe something, is there a doctrine that you follow and, and you compare it to a God of love and you cannot justify that doctrine with a God of love, you throw that doctrine away. You don't throw God is love away because that's foundational. That is what he is. And anything that doesn't agree with that, you throw away. God is love. But God cannot be love unless God, as God, is composed of both self and other. We've been talking about that. He cannot be love unless he is composed of both self and other. If God is not, is and always has been love, and this is, this is what John is, is implicating here, God has always been love because that's who he is. If God is and always has been love, then God necessarily is a social dynamic, a some, so, a some configuration that includes both self and otherness. We talked about the fact that love is a relational dynamic. That love cannot exist in isolation. That there must, be a, there must be someone else that you share that love with. And if you remember, what was the minimum number of people that needed to exist for love to, 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 to exist? It was three, right? Threeness, right? We saw that, that the concept of three, even in creation, we saw that reflected in the law of trioism, if you remember. At least three, and no, no less than three are necessary. So you turn God into an absolute, single, a solitary self, and any coherent uh, a notion of love uh, uh, in your theology disappears. And all you're left with is uh, some sort of impersonal uh, power. So we, we look at this, and so we're going to explore a little bit more about this concept of God is love, the implication. But I'm going to take a little bit of a detour. Because I told you, uh, I've been telling you since we started our series that one of the arguments that is made by our anti-Trinitarian friends in, in the Adventist church is that our Adventist pioneers were anti-Trinitarian. That our Adventist pioneers were anti-Trinitarian. This is true. They were anti-Trinitarian. But the argument follows that if the Adventist pioneers were anti-Trinitarian, then so should we today. That is the argument that is made, that, that somehow our, our Adventist pioneers had it all figured out. And they, have, they had it right, they had it correct, and that we as a church have departed from them, from, from their theology. That is the argument that is made. 
And by the way, this is not, uh, it, it isn't just the anti-Trinitarians that try to use this argument to justify their beliefs. There are other uh, uh, movements that have arisen from Adventism, one of which I've had to deal, uh, deal with uh, extensively that uses the same argument. This is what our Adventist pioneers believe, and if we don't believe as they did, we have departed from the truth. That's the argument that is made. But notice, notice here that, uh, again, it is generally acknowledged that the pioneers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church were anti-Trinitarian, but little attention has been given to the specific concern that they expressed. There was something in their mind that they were, that they were arguing against which caused them to be anti-Trinitarian. But as we'll see today, it will become evident that the Seventh-day Adventist Church arrived at its present Trinitarian position, not in spite of the pioneers, but actually thanks to them. Because of the concern they had, this is why today the Adventist Church is Trinitarian. Now remember, these, these, these men and women that, 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 that uh, became what we know as the Adventist pioneers, they came into the Millerite movement. When William Miller is preaching, Jesus is coming soon, they came from all religious backgrounds. And so they came into the Millerite movement. After the great disappointment, of course, many left. The ones that stayed behind, what we know as Advent pioneers, they all had a mixed bag of theology. They saw things from a different perspective because they all came from different religions. And so they come together now as, as the church is starting, and they are growing in their knowledge. They are studying, and, 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 and many other things that we believe today is thanks to them, including, including our Trinitarian position. Now, there's a common theological view held by Adventist pioneers and, and many people back then, and by the way, this is still held today, this concept called Arianism. How many of you have heard of this uh, concept called Arianism? There's a few of you. Arianism. You wonder, what, what is Arianism? Well, Arianism is the concept, or the concept developed from a third century priest. His name was Arius. And Arius believed that the father brought uh, uh, the son into existence through some sort of creation. Through some sort of creation that he exalted him to a unique position by giving him the title of son. And thus the son is inferior to the father because the son has a different nature. That's what Arius believed. And there are some uh, uh, denominations, some Christian denominations today that believe the same thing. In fact, Mary, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Jehovah Witnesses, this is what they believe, right? Yeah, that, that, that Jesus is not God. Jesus is not God because he's a, of a different nature, because God, uh, the Father, brought forth the Son. He created him at some point in eternity past. Arianism. Okay? Now, in, in, in the time of, uh, of the start of the church and the Adventist pioneers, this belief of Arianism was modified a little bit to a concept called semi-Arianism. Semi-Arianism. And semi-Arianism claims that the Son came into existence by emanating from the Father sometime prior to Jesus' incarnation. And because the Son emanated from the Father, now Jesus does have the same nature as the Father, and he's divine. So notice the difference. Arianism says, no, Jesus was created. The title of son was given to him, but Jesus is inferior to, to God because he was a created being. 
Well, semi-Arianism says, well, hold on, no, no. Jesus emanated from the Father, and he has the same nature. Now, we've talked about this concept of the difference between creation and begotten. Remember, I said that our uh, anti-Trinitarian friends will explain that creation and being begotten are two different things. That being begotten and somehow being brought forth. And so as I look at this concept of emanating from the Father, if I try to visualize this, the only way I can explain is that, is that creation in their minds must be that God somehow is involved. Like, like if, you rem- if you imagine God creating uh, Adam. God's creating Adam, and so he, he takes the dust of the ground, and he forms the body, and he breathes a breath of life, and Adam becomes a living soul. God is directly involved in the making. Emanating, if you think about emanating, somehow it's like when you emit light. Somehow maybe Jesus came out of the body of God the Father somehow, and because he came out of the, of the body of God the Father, then he must have the same nature of Jesus. And so this is semi-Arianism. And this concept of semi-Arianism is something that was happening in the days of the Adventist pioneers. That many of our Adventist pioneers subscribe to this concept called semi-Arianism. However, while while many of the Adventist pioneers were anti-Trinitarian, most of them were not anti-Trinitarian in the same sense as our anti-Trinitarian friends today, or the anti-Trinitarian movement. The theological concern of the Adventist pioneers had to do with a particular truth that they saw as vital. There was a particular truth they saw as vital as they were reading the scriptures, and this is it. The personhood of Christ is distinct from the personhood of the Father. This is what they saw as they were looking at scriptures. They saw, hold on, God the Father is an individual. He is a person, but we see now Jesus is also an individual. He is a person as well. This is what they were seeing, and this didn't match with what Trinitarians were teaching back then. Now, you remember, on our first session, we we talked about the fact that not every person that calls himself a Trinitarian, that believes in the Trinity, believes in the same thing. We talked about... For example, the consubstantial trinity, right? This is the the idea. If you look at it from a, a mathematical equation, one equals three. One being equals three persons, and a person and a being is not the same thing. This is the Catholic view of the trinity. So Catholics will tell you, yes, we believe in the trinity, but that's the trinity they believe in. One being equals three persons. We also talked about the tritheistic uh, variety of the Trinity, which is what we believe, that there are three different beings, three individuals that are united in nature and in purpose, and they compose what we know as God or the Godhead. This is what we Seventh-day Adventists believe, or at least the majority of Seventh-day Adventists believe that. This is what the 28 Fundamentals believe suggests, the, the, the first baptismal vow, that's what it talks about. Three individuals that together co-eternal persons that together make up God. But I also told you about another one that I told you to remember on our first session, and it's called modalism. Modalism. When we look at the statements made by the Adventist pioneers, we will discover that they were against this view called modalism, or the modalistic version of the Trinity. What is that? Well, the modalism, a variety of the Trinity, is a doctrine that says 
that the persons of the Trinity represent only three modes or aspects of divine revelation and not distinct or coexisting persons of divine nature. So in other words, it's still one equals three, but in the modalism, God actually simply reflects these three modes. So in other words, God is the Father. He is at the same time the Son. He is at the same time the Holy Spirit. This is modalism. And this was the version of the Trinity that was taught back then among Protestants. Catholics believe their own thing. Of course, Protestants, they're distancing themselves from Catholicism, so they'll believe in the Trinity, but they, they tweak it and they believe in something else. And so among Protestants, this is the form of the Trinity that was, was being taught. And so here we got the, the Adventist pioneers who look at this and say, this doesn't make sense, or they're, 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 they're arguing against the Trinity, but they're arguing against this form. Due to the fact that the leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church rejected the doctrine of the Trinity without giving an explanation to what they're arguing against specifically. In other words, they're arguing against the Trinity, but they don't, they don't say anywhere, we're, we're arguing against this modalism form. They just simply look at the Trinity. They, they look at this a teaching of the Trinity that doesn't make sense to them, so they're arguing against the Trinity. And because of that, the church got in a little bit into trouble as it started growing because for most people outside looking in, Seventh-day Adventists were Arians. They believed in Arianism because they were anti-Trinitarian. But the fact is that the Adventist pioneers had something else in mind when they were arguing against the Trinity. Yeah, the, 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 the intent of the pioneers uh, was not to deny the divinity of Christ. They believed Jesus was divine. Now, they believed Jesus was divine probably because they were semi-Arians. Because remember, semi-Arians tweaked the Arianism a little bit, and they believed that Jesus is divine. But they sought to affirm the divinity of Christ more unequivocally than what Trinitarians were doing back then. Because if you believe in the Trinity as a modal, in, in this modalistic view of the Trinity, you still believe in one being. Jesus is just a reflection of God. Remember, God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time. There's no individuals. And so this is what they're arguing against. This is what they're arguing against. But, as we can see, we'll see that while Adventist pioneers' statements seem to support, uh, uh, or rather um, to reject uh, the, uh, the Trinitarian, they're, they're supporting the anti-Trinitarian position, it is clear that they were on a trajectory that led to the study of the Seventh-day Adventist Church becoming Trinitarian. We are Trinitarian today because of the work of the Adventist pioneers. Yeah. But without subscribing to the Trinitarianism, that reduces God to simply one being projected in three persons, which is what modalism th uh, teaches. And so the Adventist pioneers were attempting to reject modalism. They were protective of the distinct personhood of Christ. They believed that Jesus was divine, that he was God, and yet they knew that he was not one and the same person as the Father. This is what the Adventist pioneers believed. And so when they heard this idea that God is, is one being projected in three different ways, well, they thought this is absurd. Because when they saw in the Bible, they saw God as a person and Jesus as a person. So this is why they're, they're attacking a tr tr uh, the Trinity, because that's what the Trinity taught. In those days. Now, due to time constraints, I, 
I'm not going to share on the screen all the statements made by Adventist pioneers because there is a bunch of them. There's a long list of Adventist pioneers that make a lot of statements when they're um, writing and arguing against the, the Trinity. If, we were, if I did that, we'd be here all day, and then the sermon would just be about showing statements of, of Adventist pioneers. So what I've done, if you look in your study guide, in the, in, the, in, the, in the back of the study guide, you have some samples of some of the Adventist pioneers and how and what they wrote about this concept, about their concern over the Trinity. And I have put in bold the statements that are important there and with a brief explanation. And what you will see as you look at these statements is that the concern over, of the Adventist pioneers was modalism. They were arguing against this form of the Trinity when they saw in Scripture that God was a person and Jesus was a person too. It didn't make sense. This is why they were anti-Trinitarian. But it is thanks to them, it is thanks to their concern that the Adventist church arrived at its present position. And we are Trinitarian again, not in spite of our pioneers, but thanks to them. Thanks to them. In, in, in that, um, your study guide there, I also included um, some, some of the statements made by Ellen White. And sort of a brief um, outline of how she evolved in this issue of the Trinity. Uh, you'll see that when... Uh, the Adventist pioneers started speaking against the Trinity. Ellen White initially was very silent about it. She didn't uh, say much about it. But as the years went by, her understanding evolved, and eventually she is a Trinitarian as well. And, and so you'll see that there. So, uh, again, I included only a few. But I told you on our, on our first session that if you want more information, I told you, um, you know, you can get these two books from Nourish. Uh, the ABC, uh, The Sonship of Christ, and The Heavenly Trio. These are two books that, are, that cover all, a lot of this that, that I've talked about, and a lot of the history of Adventism are in those books. The Sonship of Christ and The Heavenly Trio, I encourage you to get that, because there you'll have a lot more material from, um, from our Adventist pioneers, Ellen White, about the concept of the Trinity. All right, let's get back to, this, is, this was a detour about the uh, Adventist pioneers. So let's get back to this implication, the God is love implication. The most direct theological route to erase love from our understanding of God's character is to depersonalize God. To depersonalize God. And the most direct route to depersonalize God is to turn God into an absolute singularity. Yeah. And, and, and if your theology, think about this, if your theology allows you to get back far enough in history to conceive that God existed alone without a relationship, which would have to be the case if our anti-Trinitarian friends are correct. If they're correct, that means that at some point in the past, in history, God was by himself without a relationship. And if, if your theology allows for that, then you have effectively uh, need to concede that power and not love is ultimate. For the Bible says God is what? God is love. So it isn't power that is ultimate, it is love. But if anti-Trinitarians are right, it's the other way around. It's power, not love. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. These are well-known passages of Scripture. It's, it's, it's called the Shema in, in Jewish circles. 
the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. I'm reading from the New King James Version. You'll see it also on the screen, but you may also want to look at it in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The Bible says here, and notice on the screen, I've, I've sort of, uh, in parentheses, I tweaked it a little bit. In parentheses, I included the Hebrew word for the name, okay? So here, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So again, this is called the Shema in, in Jewish circles. The Shema is from the word, you know, the Shema means to hear. So hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And there, there's a, new, a number of things I want to point out here that are, are, are clear here in the Shema that will help us understand this concept of the Trinity. So number one, the Shema, the Shema combines, notice, the singular Yahweh with the plural Elohim, right? Elohim is the plural for God. Yahweh is the singular for Lord. So it combines Yahweh, the singular Yahweh, with the plural Elohim, and the use of the singular and the plural conveys the idea that God is one, and yet he's more than one. Now, I know for our finite minds, it's hard to maybe wrap our minds around that. But the, these words that Moses uses are very important. The fact that he uses Yahweh and Elohim. The implication is God is one, and yet more than one. The Shema declares that Yahweh, Elohim, is something in particular, one. One. Now, you may wonder, in what sense is God one? In what sense is God one? Well, the word that, uh, the Hebrew word that Moses uses for one is the Hebrew word echad. The Hebrew word echad. And echad entails the idea of a compound unity. The word echad, a compound unity. And here, uh, let me give you a, a very good example so that you can understand this. Moses, when he is in Genesis, talking about the first marriage of Adam and Eve, right? Notice what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become echad, the compound unity. You see, Lucy and I have been married for 31 years, right? Hallelujah. She's put up with me all this time. We made a vow. We took a, made a covenant with each other. When we were married and took that vow and made that bond, we became one, right? We became one in unity. We are become echad. But that doesn't mean that we're still two separate individuals. I'm one person. She is one person. Two different individuals. But under the bond of marriage, now we become one in unity, echad. And this is the same word that Moses is using to describe God. God is echad, right? Echad, there you go. You got the guttural, the Hebrew guttural. Now, this is, this is interesting because in Hebrew, the word that is used for the number one, talking about a singular 
person, a singular thing, one as opposed to two or three, one. The Hebrew word is yachid. Yachid. Can you say that now, Mary? Yachid. That is the, the Hebrew for the number one. If Moses was, was interested in pointing out the fact that God is an absolute singularity, he would have used yachid. But he doesn't use yachid. He uses echad. Echad, because Echad talks about unity. Unity. Moses uses Echad in order to convey the idea that God is a relational unit and not a solitary singularity. He is intentional about this. Is intentional. Now, number three, it is on the premise that Yahweh Elohim is one that Israel is commanded to love. So notice again, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. In other words, we are to love God. Why? Because he is a relational unit. Because he is love. We love because he loved us first. Right? God is love, and so we are to do the same thing. So the Shema commands human beings to love God precisely because God is love. God lives uh, 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 his divine existence uh, in, in, in other-centered other dynamics. And so we that are made in his image are to do the same. Love with other-centered dynamics. In other words, relational. The command to love will not make sense and have no relational justification if God was an absolute singularity. It would not make sense. It would not make sense. In that case, you know, maybe the, the command to love God would go something like this. God is a self-referring being, but you should love with reference to others. That would not make sense. I love, I'm, I'm just a single guy, but you are, are, are to keep others in mind. No, God is an example to us. We love because he loves, because he is love. And so the whole point of the Shema is actually the opposite train of thought. God is love, and because God is love, we should be love as well. We should love others in the same way. Relational dynamics. But now let's look at a few definitions. A few definitions. Number one, polytheism. Very simple, right? Polytheism, the idea that there are multiple gods. Different religions of the world believe this. Our Hindu friends, for example, they believe that there are over 30 million gods. There's a God just above for anything. Right. 30 million gods. Imagine that. It's so a lot of times when you, when you preach Jesus to the Hindus, it is easy for them to accept Jesus because they just add Jesus to the 30 million gods they already have. That polytheism. The next one is monotheism, the idea that there is one God. One God. And of course, we are monotheistic. Christianity is monotheistic. Uh, uh, Judaism is monotheistic. Uh, um, uh, Islam is monotheistic, right? The belief that there is one God. We're, we're on top of that, right? Because that's what the Bible says. There is one God. But now let's break this down a little bit. Let's break this down a little bit. Let's define Trinitarianism. Now, this, this definition of Trinitarianism is the Trinitarian view that we Adventists hold, right? And that is that the, the idea that there is three co-eternal persons that compose one God. This is what, again, we read in our 28 fundamental beliefs. This is what is defined in our first baptismal vow. 
The idea that God is the unity of three. The word trinity simply means that, the unity of three. So they are three co-eternal persons that compose one God. Now, as such, as we look at this definition of Trinitarianism, it is this one that is really the only coherent monotheism. And I'll make sense here in a little bit. But let's be honest with us, or with ourselves. When, when, when we as Trinitarians, when we define uh, our concept of the Trinity, of three divine beings united you know, in one purpose in nature that become one God, some people get the wrong idea and they say, hold on, you seem to be believing in three gods. And that's how, at the very least, some of our uh, uh, Muslim friends, when they look at Christianity, that's how, that's how they criticize Christianity. Because when we say we believe in the Trinity, in their minds, well, you must believe in three gods and there's only one God. Right? So, the, the, you know, is the doctrine of the Trinity actually polytheism? How can the Trinity be called monotheism? If there are three persons and each one of the three is God, does not that mean that there are three gods? Well, somebody said no, and I agree with that. No. The Shema actually resolves this problem. The Shema resolves this problem because the Shema uh, 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 suggests that God is more than one and yet one. God is more than one and yet one. See, the problem to, the, to, to, the, the, to this issue lies in the biblical claim that Christianity makes that no other religion in the world makes. And that claim is that God is love. No other uh, you know, religious body outside Christianity believes that some, one of their gods is love. No, they, have, they may have many gods, but Christianity is the only one that makes that claim. God is love. Consisting of three persons, God is one precisely because love is a reality that defines who and what he is. God does not merely love. God is love. And love is other-centered. It's a relational dynamic. What God is, is reciprocal love. And we should be the same. So God is three persons who are dynamically constituted as one God by virtue of the love that unifies them as one divine essence. Because again, remember, the minimum numeric value of love is what? Three. Three, for love to really exist. So when we think about monotheism, we only have two alternatives of what to believe. Here's the, the alternatives. Either monotheism means that God is, in a sense, an absolute singularity, only one being, or monotheism means that God is one in the sense of a relational, rational unity. Those are the options that we have. And friends, this is why I said earlier that, 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 that the Trinitarian issue, the Trinitarian is really only the, the only coherent monotheism because that's what we believe. That's what we believe. Monotheism means God is one in a sense of a rational unity. A rational unity. And that's what we believe, friends. Now, if God, think about this, because we need to use our logic. If God is a solitary self, if, if he existed by himself at some point in eternity past, as our uh, anti-Trinitarian friends suggest, then love is not foundational to God's identity. 
And if love is not foundational to God's identity, self-sacrifice in the face of evil would be impossible. It would be impossible. Remember the question I asked on our first time together, on our first session, why is it important for us to, believe, to understand and believe in the Trinity? And we touched on that last time because it touches on the character of God, on who God is. If we don't understand that, if anti-Trinitarians are right, then God is not love. And if God is not love, he would never self-sacrifice for our salvation. This is why this is important. See, the cross of Calvary, as the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, cannot logically be deduced on the premise that God is a, a, an absolute singularity. It just doesn't happen. Because you see, friends, Jesus was a gift from who? From God the Father. Jesus was a gift from God the Father. In other words, the Father and Jesus, if the Father and God and Jesus are not equal, then only Jesus self-sacrificed and the Father had nothing to do with it. The Father had nothing to do with it. Jesus was the gift. Again, if God the Father and Jesus are not equal, then only Jesus self-sacrificed. The Father had nothing to do with it. Now, some people will argue, and, and I used to also make this argument and that is, you know, obviously, I have children. And I love my children, you know, dearly. Would I give my child to die in a place of people that don't love me? Well, obviously, I would say probably not. But if I loved them enough, maybe I would, right? I would give my son. And, of course, as a parent, if my son is going through suffering, then that, that hurts me too, doesn't it? You know, as a parent. But think about this, though. If God's love for us was so much that he wanted to save us, why would he give his son? Why not give himself? Why would not the father, if, if I, there was a choice of me giving my son Jean-Luc or me, okay, I would rather me take the pain than him. But because God is love, he must self-sacrifice himself too. Otherwise, then he didn't have nothing to do with it. It was only Jesus. Now, yeah, he may, have, he may hurt because his son is going through pain, but he's not going through it. You see the difference? The Bible says, of course, that God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is God the Father who gave. God the Father who gave. Now, this brings us probably to the, to the most egregious theological transgression of anti-Trinitarians. Again, this is why understanding and believing in the Trinity is, is important, it's vital. And it is this. By reducing God to a solitary self, the anti-Trinitarian doctrine reduces the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the ultimate, uh, ultimate act of self-centeredness, essentially rendering Calvary a pagan sacrifice. A pagan sacrifice. You see, pagan religions sac made these sacrifices to appease their God. You know, God, their God was mad. Their God wasn't sending rain. We need to make our God happy, so let's, let's, let's do these sacrifices. Well, if anti-Trinitarians are right, then it, Jesus, God the Father stayed behind. He gave that, 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 that being that was secondary to himself to die. He had nothing to do with it, in essence. Then Jesus' death on the cross is no different. Then the pagan sacrifice. Think about it. 
According to the anti-Trinitarian view, the one who died on the cross was chronologically secondary and by nature a lesser divine being occupying a subordinate position under the one true God. That's the one who died on the cross. Now, depending on which version uh, of the anti-Trinitarianism we consider, Christ was either a created deity, a begotten deity, or an eternally generated deity. But it doesn't matter. Whatever word you employ to describe uh, how Jesus came to existence, the point is that he came into existence. The point is that he didn't always exist. Yeah. So he, he, if he didn't always exist, he is not God in the same sense as the Father, if anti-Trinitarians are right. And so the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary, again, this is the anti-Trinitarian logic. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary was a sacrifice of a created being to God for human salvation rather than the sacrifice of God for our salvation. You see the difference? A sacrifice to God instead of the sacrifice of God. And this would equate to a complete erasing of the distinction between, um, between the Christian gospel and the pagan religions of history. It would mean that we're no different than the pagan religions of history if our anti-Trinitarian friends are correct. Now, I said, I said earlier that Ellen White evolved in her understanding of the Trinity. When she finally uh, uh, gets a grasp of what the Trinity is about, in her thinking, Ellen White's thinking, it is the absolute equality of Christ with the Father that distinguishes this death on the cross from every other transaction in human history. Notice what she says in the book, That I May Know Him, page 292. Christ's position with his father is one of what? Equality. Equality. This enabled him to become a sin offering for transgressors. He was fully sufficient to magnify the law and make it honorable. So notice then that in order for, uh, uh, for the magnifying of God's law to happen, the one dying on the cross must be equal with the father. Must be equal to the Father. What does this mean? Well, we know that God's law is love in Scripture. And so we, think, we need to think about it. If the cross was meant to magnify God's law of love, God must be the one doing the suffering on the cross of Calvary. If the person on the cross was not equal with the Father, then that inequality would render the cross a supreme act of taking on the part of God, instead of a supreme act of giving from the part of God. But John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. Let's look at one more passage from the writings of Paul. We've looked at Paul a couple of times since we started our series. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8, I should say. Let this, mind be, uh, this, let, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Notice that he uses the word equal too, just like Ellen White used it as well. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, 
And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul is very logical here. Here's Paul's logic. Paul's logic. The one who was in very nature God became human. He became human. He voluntarily emptied himself of the prerogatives that belonged to God so that he would become human, so that he might give himself as God over to death on our behalf. This is Paul's logic here, right? God voluntarily emptied himself of the prerogatives of God to become a human and as a human to sacrifice himself so that we would be saved. That's the logic that Paul uses. So he's saying that God is the one who sacrificed himself. However, if the anti-Trinitarian friends are right, this is their logic, the anti-Trinitarian logic. That logic says that a divine being who was, uh, who was long ago brought into existence by God, this divine being was sacrificed by God, thus someone other than God died for the salvation of men. Remember, Jesus was created, or he emanated, he came into existence, so he's not God, he is secondary to God. He was the one who was sacrificed by God, so God was not the one who sacrificed, it was somebody else. In this case, Jesus. But Jesus was a secondary being, if anti-Trinitarians are right. This is their logic. But friends, Calvary is either proof that God is love, or it's proof that God is a bloodthirsty monster. Those are the two alternatives. If God is the one doing the suffering and dying at Calvary, then Satan's fundamental lie that God is selfish is proven false. Yeah. But if the one suffering at Calvary is someone other than God, then welcome to a universe when the, where the, the most powerful person in the world in existence is essentially self-serving. Self-serving. But now we've talked a lot about God the Father, God the Son, but what about the Holy Spirit? What about the Holy Spirit? Well, Scripture makes it clear that the, the Holy Spirit is also a separate person. In fact, when our Adventist pioneers are studying Scripture, this is, where, this is the conclusion they're making. God the Father is a person, God the Son is a person, an individual, and the Holy Spirit too. And there is reasons for this. We saw last time uh, Luke's account of Jesus' baptism, right? Matthew writes the same thing, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here, just like in Luke, we see the three persons of the Godhead. Jesus is there, right? Because he's the one being baptized. He goes into the water, comes up from the water, and when he comes up from the water, now we have the Holy Spirit in bodily form, mind you, coming upon Jesus. And then God from heaven, the Father, says, this is my beloved Son. They're all three there. And so the Adventist pioneers look at this and see, we see three individuals here. This is why they're arguing against the Trinity, because modalism doesn't teach that. 
doesn't teach that. We see all three of them there. The person of the Holy Spirit is also seen in the Old Testament. David's word in Psalm 51.11, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take who? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 10 and 11. But they rebelled and grieved who? His Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? So we can clearly see that the Holy Spirit is someone who can be given and someone who can be taken away because he's a person. He is an individual in the same way. Again, the unity of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this becomes even clearer as Ellen White comes to the full understanding of what the Trinity is, and she writes about it. She writes about it in several places, and I want to share with you one that is probably the clearest from the book Evangelism, page 615. Evangelism, page 615, she says, The Comforter, who's the Comforter? The Holy Spirit, right? So the Comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the Spirit in all the fullness of what? Of the Godhead. Notice she uses this word Godhead. What we know of God or Godhead are synonyms, basically, in our understanding of the Trinity. The Spirit is in all fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal Savior. There are three, how many? Three living persons in the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who receive Christ by, being, by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their uh, efforts to live a new life in Christ. So friends, she can't be any clearer than that. Yeah? The Spirit, the Godhead, all three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, combine what we know as the heavenly trio, what we know as the Godhead, the Trinity, the unity of three. Can't be any clearer than that, friends. So what have we learned so far in our three-part series? Just as a, uh, to end up here, there are, three, there are variations of the doctrine of the Trinity, meaning that just because somebody says they believe in the Trinity doesn't mean they believe in the same thing. Okay, we Adventists believe in a tritheistic form of the Trinity, the unity of three co-eternal persons that compose the Godhead, as we saw there in the writings of Mrs. White. The Adventist pioneers, while being anti-Trinitarian, they are, you know, fighting against modalism. This is what they're rejecting, and this is what the Protestant Trinity doctrine was teaching. This is why they're arguing against it. The version of the Trinity that says that God is composed of three modes or roles occupied by a single divine individual, wherein one God is manifest or revealed himself in three different ways. Their concern over this and their belief that God the Father and the Jesus were two distinct persons led to the current understanding of the Trinity by Seventh-day Adventists. And again, we are a Trinitarian today, not in spite of our Adventist pioneers, but thanks to them. Number three, the concept of the only begotten Son. Remember, we talked about this in our first session the, be, the only begotten Son, it does not mean that Jesus had a beginning. 
The concept of the Son of God is seen throughout Scripture, showing that Jesus was not the only person called the Son of God, and certainly he wasn't the only person called the only begotten Son of God. So we know then that the Son of God is a covenant title. It's a covenant title and not a chronological one. The Son of God. Number four, God is love. God is love. Love, by definition, is a relational dynamic. So there's no, if there's no other person with whom to relate, love cannot happen. For God to be love, he must be more than a singularity. There would have to be other beings to whom love is given and received. And we saw that the minimum number of people needed for love to exist is three. Three. Now, number five, I'm going to give you some homework. The fifth one, I'm going to give you some homework. Because one thing that you will discover as you read the, uh, the handouts that I gave you is that um, the, uh, the uh, anti-Trinitarian view actually leads to pantheism. You know what pantheism is? The, the idea that, uh, that everything is God. Everything is God. And we see that because... If our anti-Trinitarian friends are, are, are correct, and again, there's different views that they have, but the point is that, thank you, thank you. The point is that Jesus didn't always exist, and that divinity was given to him. He is not of the same essence of God. Now, semi-Arians will say that Jesus is divine, but everybody else says he isn't. If, if divinity is something that you can give to somebody, what's to hold God from giving us divinity? And I mentioned before that our Mormon friends, this is what they believe, that every one of us will become God because just as God gave divinity to Jesus, he's going to give it to you and me. We will be like God at some point. This is what they believe. And this is a very dangerous thing for this kind of belief to be in the Adventist church. Very dangerous, friends. At least the pantheism now. Uh, notice that I have there, it says, see the issues uh, surrounding Dr. Kellogg, John Harvey Kellogg. So some of you who are familiar with Adventist history have known this name before. He was, um, you know, you could argue one of the pioneers. He was in, you know, he established a, really the health system, you know, uh, uh, the sanitarium. He was a very influential man in the start of our church. And John Harvey Kellogg, wrote a book called The Living Temple. The Living Temple. And this book, because he was very influential, you know, it, it, he was, you know, a lot of people were reading it. Of course, Mrs. White reads it also, and she immediately saw, is this a problem with this book? This book has a lot of pantheistic ideas. Now, she actually uh, commends him, him for some things he writes there, but he's, he's very clear, this book is a problem. It has pantheism in it. And John Harvey Kellogg wanted her to endorse the book. And so she didn't endorse the book. She criticized the book. And so he made some changes, but he acknowledges himself when he explains himself that it is because of his anti-Trinitarian views that leads to these pantheistic ideas. So anti-Trinitarianism, friends, leads or can lead to pantheism. This is why this has no place in the Seventh-day Adventist church. It has no place. Now, you know, despite all that we have studied together in the last three sessions, I do acknowledge that, you know, the subject of the Trinity is a big subject. It is a big subject. There may be, you know, with the all information we have, you're still wondering, you know, I'm still a bit confused, and that's okay. What I encourage you to do is that ask God for understanding and clarity 
Because by faith, we know that his word has enough evidence and that we can say for sure, we can conclude safely that the Trinity is indeed biblical. It is indeed biblical. We can take that to the bank. And so I'm going to end today with the question that I started with on our first session. There it is. This is our first baptismal vow. All of you that are Adventists, that are part of our church, at some point said yes to this vow. Even though now some of our anti-Trinitarian friends are taking that back, they took a vow and now they say, well, I don't believe it anymore. But they still want to call themselves Adventists. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that. Do you believe that there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. Do you believe that today? Let me see your hands. All right. You understand that this is the tritheistic form of the Trinity, that the Trinity is biblical, and this is what we believe thanks to our Adventist pioneers. Amen? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.